And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620, or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com or Google Play, iTunes, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. Also, you can go to our Facebook page, and it's uploaded there as well. We are grateful for your support, grateful for that you're listening to us. Today, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to look at what's going on in Texas as the Texas law uh, continues to be in effect. It was uh, originally uh, the Supreme Court said we're not going to touch it, and so it was allowed to, to move forward, and then an appellate uh, judge stepped in and put a, a block on it, and then now uh, folks have stepped in and, and reversed that again. So we'll talk about that more in a second. I want to start, though, with a piece by Ben Watson. Benjamin Watson is a former NFL football player, played for the Patriots, played for uh, the Saints, uh, also big-time pro-lifer and is doing great things uh, with the Human Coalition and, and others. Uh, and he wrote a piece over at Newsweek that, that I think is important and doesn't get enough focus. Uh, and it says this, Texas's new heartbeat law uh, doesn't sit well with the abortion industry. Protecting life in the womb never does. But it isn't just the abortion industry that's in uproar. Countless prominent voices in our culture are leveraging this moment to push pro-abortion narratives. Since Senate Bill 8 went into effect in September, several congresswomen and other public figures have come forward to tell their abortion stories. They spoke of feeling alone, of feeling scared, of feeling hurt. They said their abortions caused them intense shame, even grief. But somehow, they presented these stories of suffering and sadness as arguments for, not against the act of abortion. One story in particular caught my attention and gave me pause for serious reflection. Uma Thurman the famous actress wrote a piece for the Washington Post describing her story of procuring an abortion as a teenager. And although the story was meant to highlight how abortion helped and empowered her, what it really shows is how abortion enables men to neglect, abuse, and take advantage of women. Thurman's story is truly heartbreaking. It isn't the story of a woman who was rescued from hardship by killing her preborn child. It's the story of a woman driven by the bad behavior of men to feel abortion was her only option. Every step of the way, Thurman describes the men who played a role in her decision to abort. From the much older man who impregnated her when she was just a girl to the father who had never discussed sex with her and sternly warned her not to keep her child. And then there's the male abortionist who offered her consolation while still ending the life of her preborn baby without remorse. And of course, there's the unspoken part played by all the men in her professional life who likely communicated that in her career that her, that her career would be over if she became a mother at such a young age. As I read this story, I, of course, saw Thurman's pain and recognized its validity. But I also saw how numerous men in her life used abortion as a tool and not for empowerment, sexualized and pursued by older men while she was just a teenager alone in a foreign land, separated from her family. Thurman needed support, care, and guidance. What she got was pressure on all sides to get an abortion. Uma Thurman's story is telling. It reveals the dark truth behind abortion, that it enables a culture of sexual abuse and relationship dysfunction that always terminates in heartbreak, sadness, shame, and injury. The abortion industry doesn't want us to think holistically about sex and pregnancy. It wants us to sexualize women while pathologizing motherhood, to, adult, uh, to adulate abortion providers while ignoring the circumstances that lead to abortion, circumstances that could and should have been different. Here's the problem. Behind every pregnancy, there's always at least one man, and all too often, abortion obscures his role in creating conditions wherein a woman feels that abortion is her only option. 
What's worse, by treating abortion like a quick fix for pregnancy, the abortion industry and the pro-choice narrative that protects it indirectly support the men who create these conditions, conditions of neglect, loneliness, and sorrow. Abortion, in short, disempowers women by empowering men to exploit them sexually, professionally, or personally without fear of consequences or responsibility. The stories being told about abortion should make us ask some tough questions, questions that it seems our culture doesn't want us to ask. If a man was pouring love and support into the life of the mother of his preborn child, would that mother feel pressured to get an abortion? The abortion industry wants women to fear pregnancy, fear how it might change their dating lives, their job life, their family life. But isn't that fear all too often rooted in the absence of men who are standing up and taking responsibility? I wonder if Uman Thurman's situation would have ended differently if her father had said, your mom and I will support you in having this baby, even in the midst of the difficulty. Would the situation have been different if the man who impregnated her had done better for her before the pregnancy even came to be? Shouldn't he be held to account for sexualizing and taking advantage of her as a teenager? These are the questions we have to start asking and the conversation we have to start having whenever we talk about abortion. Abortions almost always occur against a backdrop of distrust, confusion, doubt, uncertainty, and hardship. What role do men play in creating these conditions and what role can they play in healing them? That's the question. Again, that's by Benjamin Watson over at Newsweek. Look, I've said this to a number of folks, and I've said it to to men that are in the situation. Men that have come into to Hope Resource Center with their girlfriends or with their wives uh, who are scared. And they look at me and they say, look, I've told her I'll support her in whatever decision she makes. And I, I look at them and I say, yeah, that is putting all the burden on her shoulders. That is not you carrying any of the burden. You see, when my wife says, where do you want to go eat tonight? And I say, I'll support whatever decision you make. That's okay. That's me saying, I don't really care. I'll go eat wherever. That's a, that's a minor decision. That's not a life altering decision. But when, when your girl comes in and says, I, I'm pregnant, what should we do? And you look her in the eye and you say, I support whatever decision you make. What you're doing is washing your hands of it. You become Pontius Pilate when they say, we need to crucify Jesus. And Pontius Pilate says, I wash my hands of it. I have nothing to do with this. This is all on you. No, because he had the power to do something. He had the power to step in. He had the power to make the tough choice. You see, in these relationships, in these situations, the men involved, if it's consensual, the men involved have the power to do something, to step up. And instead, a lot of times, They twiddle their thumbs like Adam did in the garden while Eve was being attacked. Adam's over there twiddling his thumbs, doing nothing while his woman is being preyed upon. And so what we find in culture today is men are told to shut up. Men are told to get out of the way. And so what happens? Men say, okay. That's the easy part. I can easily shut up and I can easily get out of the way. This isn't a man decision. This is a female decision. So I don't want to have anything to do with it. When we see study after study shows the most influential person in the life of that mom and whether she's going to have an abortion or not is the man. So how do you, how do you work those two things out? How do you grapple with that? 
We tell men to shut up. We tell men not to say a word. We tell men it's not about you. It's not your issue. And then we do studies where the women that are in those scenarios say the most influential person involved is the man. Not their dad, not their mom, not their pastor, not their best friend, not their college counselor, not their high school counselor, not the neighbor down the road, not their therapist. The most influential person is the man that got them pregnant. So, so we can't have both of those be true. We can't tell men to shut up and sit down when women are telling us the most influential person involved is the man. I really would like for him to say something at this moment. See how backwards that is as a culture? The women are saying, Christian and non-Christian alike, the women are saying, I need to hear from him. I need his opinion. I need his input. And culture is saying, you need to shut up, men. We don't need your input. We don't need your opinion. While the women in crisis are telling us, but please, I, I, I need his opinion. I need him to help me shoulder this burden. I need him to step up. I need him to talk to me. And so that's where we are. That's where we are as a culture. It's backwards. Culture says one thing. While the women that are actually going through it are saying something completely different. And so by telling men to shut up and sit down, and this isn't your fight, you're putting all of that burden and that weight on the shoulder of the woman. And then what we know is post-abortion, both parties are carrying that burden and both parties are carrying the weight of that decision. The man being shamed because in his mind, I could have done something and I did nothing. The woman thinking, if somebody would have just stepped up, I probably could have done this. What would my child have been like? Would it have been a boy or a girl? Would they have had blue eyes or brown? Would they have looked like me? Oh, to hear their giggles in my hallway. You see, those are the questions and, and the things that, that these women and men are wrestling with. A lot of times alone. And in secret, because they're ashamed to tell anyone. And then as a culture, our response is, first off, you should have no remorse. There's nothing to be to feel guilty about. Just move on with your life, which is impossible. They can't do that. And then our culture tells men to shut up. You, this doesn't affect you. When we know it does. And so when we hear these stories of men uh, not stepping up, of, of men being abusive, of men pressuring the woman to abort, the abortion industry, the abortion narrative empowers the man in those cases. So in one way, they're saying, I am woman, hear me roar. Men, you need to shut up. But when you have those uh, crappy dudes 
that if they offer any opinion, it's simply you need to get rid of this. The abortion industry empowers the man, not the woman. You see how strange that is? So we should be calling for more. You know, I've, I've seen on social media some folks, when the law out of Texas was passed, some folks saying, well, if, you know, I think we need to have a law that holds men accountable. And you have pro-lifers going, yeah, we're for that. Men should be held accountable. Well, I think men should, should have to do this or that. And pro-lifers are going, yeah, like you clearly don't understand our position. But see, we're at a place where abortion is affecting more and more people. And the ramifications of that are, are, are playing out in depression, in shame, in guilt. And so they're at a crossroads of, well, we don't want men to, to be involved, but yet all these women are saying the most influential person is the man. And if the man just outright says get an abortion and then they get an abortion, then we're empowering men and not women. And, and so we're, we're at a weird spot. But see, that's what secularism does. They don't know the answer. Secularism don't even know what a woman and a man is anymore. It's no longer a pregnant woman. It's a pregnant person. And so we're so confused as a populace and as a culture that we don't know who to hold accountable. I thought feminism was for empowering women. And now we're told a man can be a woman, a woman can be a man. So who are you empowering here? We're told that, that men should be able to participate in women's sports if they're claiming to be a woman. So who are you empowering? But this was bound to happen when you go down a secular culture path. This is what happens. We get into la-la land and nonsense, and the people that are hurt most by it are the people that are directly affected by it, not those that are looking at it from a 30,000-foot view, and they're just going, we need to have this policy or that policy. They're not thinking about their neighbors that are being affected by it. We'll talk more when we come back. So young girl and you know you don't have to So as we continue the conversation, uh, Texas has been in the news quite a bit for a number of things, one of those being their most recent uh, abortion law that was passed, signed by the governor, and then the Supreme Court made a statement on it saying we're not going to take it up because it, it's got to go through the courts. Uh, Texas did did something where they they got creative and they uh, they they put a different kind of mechanism in place for prosecution and and so they're empowering citizens of the state uh, to step in and so it's an interesting law never been done before and so uh, it's been interesting to see what the courts are doing but Texas's near total abortion ban can continue to be enforced while the law's constitutionality is decided. A panel of federal uh, appellate judges ordered late Thursday of last week. The three justices of the Fifth U.S. Circuit of Appeals, uh, considered perhaps the most conservative appellate court in the nation, also agreed to hear oral arguments in the underlying lawsuit the Biden administration filed against Texas over the law. So, so what you have is you have the Biden administration uh, suing for this law. Uh, not the, the people of Texas, but the Biden administration 
stepping in and going after a state. So uh, it's interesting to see what's going to happen from there. A U.S. district court previously blocked enforcement of the law for two days before the Fifth Circuit initially froze the order. The panel of Fifth Circuit justices agreed in a 2-1 decision Thursday to let the law remain in effect until it considers the U.S. Department of Justice's challenge. Judge Carl Stewart dissented. The decision means the appellate court will take over the legal challenge to Senate Bill 8 that was being overseen by U.S. District Judge Robert Pittman. Oral arguments before the Fifth Circuit have not yet been scheduled, but it could be months before they take place. We are very grateful, said Kim Schwartz, Media and Communications Director for the Anti-Abortion Group Texas Right to Life. Notice they got to throw in there the anti-abortion group instead of just saying Texas Right to Life uh, because that's what they do. They want to do everything they can to paint pro-lifers in a bad light. And by calling you anti-something, then that makes you a bad person. Know what you're reading and know what they're doing. It's important that we understand that. The article continues, we ultimately believe that we'll be victorious. That's what Kim Schwartz said. The Department of Justice didn't immediately respond to a request for comment late Thursday. At least one abortion provider denounced the decision. Uh, They said this, yet again... The Fifth Circuit has shown that it is unwilling to take action to stop the immense harm Texans are facing or to protect Texans' constitutional right to abortion. Now think about this. This law, in essence, is going to save about 150 babies a day. That's babies being born in Texas. That means 150 Texans will be spared every day. They'll be saved. Their life will occur because of this law in Texas. 150 a day. Let's do quick math. So let's say this stays into effect for a month. So what's that? 31 days. That's 4,650. Let's say it stays into effect for three months. That's 13,950 babies being saved in Texas. Texans being saved. Yet they're angry. The abortion rights folks are angry. Helen Krasnoff, Vice President for Public Policy Litigation and Law for the Planned Parenthood, uh, said the Fifth Circuit is now complicit in the scheme of SB8 to deprive Texans access to abortion. I would argue uh, they're actually saving lives. So Planned Parenthood's wrong in this, again. Uh, this law is saving lives, 150 a day. And as long as it's into effect, whether that be months, days, or years, more lives will be saved. If If Planned Parenthood had their way, 150 heartbeats a day would be extinguished, period, in the state of Texas. That's what they want. So when they argue they're for Texans and the right to abortion, they're arguing against 150 Texans and their right to life. Please understand that. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's office quickly applauded the Fifth Circuit's ruling, of course. The Fifth Circuit has ruled on our side, a testament that we are on the right side of the law in life. The office tweeted Thursday night. I'll continue to fight back against the Biden administration's lawless overreach. The Justice Department can now seek an emergency appeal from the U.S. Supreme Court asking for it to overrule the Fifth Circuit. The Supreme Court previously allowed the law to take effect without ruling on its constitutionality after abortion providers asked the high court to step in. The law bans abortions as early as six weeks into a pregnancy before many people know they are pregnant. See, they got to add that extra segment in there. It doesn't matter if you know your, we, we have people that literally have come in to the office and they're 20 weeks pregnant and say, I didn't know I was pregnant. So are we to say, if you don't know you're pregnant, it's okay to end the life of that baby? There have been people that have showed up to the emergency room thinking their, their belly's hurting and they have a baby. 
So the the argument that well they don't even know they're pregnant. So so that means that that life has less value all of a sudden because you don't know you're pregnant. I mean, come on folks. It has been able to mostly flout the constitutional right to to have an abortion before fetal viability established by Roe v. Wade in 1973 and subsequent rulings because of the unique way it is written. Uh, yes, we talked about this week after week. In order to get anything through the legislature, you got to get creative. Now, when pro-lifers get created, they're told, you're trying to skirt the law, you're trying to skirt the Constitution. When abortion proponents get creative with law, well, they're just amazing people that we need to celebrate. They're just amazing with their legal mind. Look, politics, politics and legislation is about being creative and getting it to fit in the model. That's what it is. And that's what Texas did. The statute leaves enforcement of the new restrictions to private citizens instead of a state officials by allowing anyone to file lawsuits through the civil court system against people who perform or assist someone in getting an abortion. The law lays out a penalty of at least $10,000 for people or groups that are successfully sued. Some abortion clinics resumed services outlawed under Texas law during the two days it was blocked. The abortion law allows for retroactive enforcement, meaning those who helped someone get an abortion while the law was blocked during that period could also be sued. Again, creative legislation. Now, do you know that before this law went into effect, there was an abortion doctor that worked 17 hours in one day to perform as many abortions as he could? Think about that. A marathon abortion day. That's what they had to get in as many abortions as they could before the law went into effect. How sick and twisted are we as a society? But that doctor will be heralded as a hero. They'll probably make a documentary about him, make a movie about him and and the work that he did before this law went into effect. The Fifth Circuit already issued an emergency stay in late August to stop district court proceedings and cancel a hearing in another lawsuit challenging Texas abortion law. That case was brought on by abortion providers and also overseen by Pittman. The Fifth Circuit is set to hear oral arguments in the abortion provider's case no earlier than December. The same panel of Fifth Circuit judges will consider both cases. Oh, and and in this article that I'm reading is from the Texas Tribune. Look at this disclosure they put at the bottom of the article. Listen to this. Texas Tribune wrote this article, obviously, in favor of the abortion industry. And then they put a disclosure at the bottom. Planned Parenthood has been a financial supporter of the Texas Tribune, a nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization that is funded in part by donations from members, foundations, and corporate sponsors. Financial supporters play no role in the Tribune's journalism. Oh, of course not. So Planned Parenthood is giving money to the Tribune. And then the Tribune saying, but, but that has nothing to do with what we write or what we say. Well, of course it does. And so the abortion industry, when, when Planned Parenthood and these organizations say, look, we're not all about abortion. And then in these cases, they come out full force to promote abortion. You know what they're about. So this law is saving 150 babies a day. That's the truth. Now, would I have crafted this law? Probably not. Would I have voted for it? 100%. But it, the fact remains, it's saving 150 babies. Abortion clinics are, are are not performing abortions. 
And the retroactive aspect of this law means that even when the law is uh, paused, people can go back and sue the abortion industry. So it's going to be interesting to see the courts. I don't think the courts have seen anything like this. And so this may be the, the model moving forward for states. It'll be interesting. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we continue the conversation today, there's a lot going on uh, out of Texas. There's a lot going on in Washington coming up with Supreme Court cases out of Mississippi. Uh, look, all of these are positive things for the, the pro-life movement. These are these are uh, for a long time. Pro-lifers have kind of walked around with their head down. Hey, we're losing. You know, 1973 crushed us. The reality is we've had a lot of wins since 1973. We continue to have a lot of wins. And these court cases, uh, I think, will prove to be that. Now, the, the Mississippi case that, as we talked about over the last couple of weeks, uh, Kavanaugh's kind of the deciding vote. Now, I think Kavanaugh's going to do the right thing. I think we may even see the court decide to a place where even Justice Roberts, because he wants to be on the winning team, Justice Roberts may even vote in favor of the Mississippi law. And if we get to the place where Roe has to be overturned, in the state of Tennessee, we already have a trigger law in place, so abortion would be outlawed in the state of Tennessee, along with other states. It's very good news. But but I've talked about a lot of that, and, and you can find a lot of that information. What I want to do in this last segment is talk about uh, Colin Powell. Colin Powell passed away uh, earlier this week, and, uh, and there's a, a nice tribute to him over at the National Review that I want to share with you. Uh, and if you're not familiar with his work and, and he's done a lot of great things for this country, he served honorably, uh, in the military and under the George W. administration, uh, on paper, it shouldn't be shocking to hear that an 84 year old man succumbed to complications from COVID. And yet this, uh, this week's announcement that former secretary of state and retired general Colin Powell passed away comes as a shock, another marker of the end of a better era in our politics way back in 1995, uh, this author stood in a long line to get a copy of Powell's autobiography. It's called My American Journey, autographed. Maybe there was little naivete in the seemingly widespread and seemingly bipartisan belief that an African-American president would bring racial reconciliation in an era of good feeling. At that point, the only thing most Americans knew about Powell is what they had seen of him in the television briefings during the Persian Gulf War. Professional, direct, the occasional dramatic flair from the simplicity of his statements cutting through the usual Washington jargon, said this, quote, our strategy to go after this army is very, very simple. First, we're going to cut it off, and then we're going to kill it, end quote. For a potential presidential candidate, it is near ideal to be associated with traits like directness, clarity, the sense of being a class American success story, and a key architect of a resounding U.S. military victory. It's hard to overstate how much people in the early 90s just expected Powell to be the first African-American president someday. The sci-fi television show Sequest, set in the uh, far future of the year 2018, worked in a reference to former President Colin Powell. But by 1995, Powell had decided not to run for president. Bill Clinton was alleged terrified of running against him. Powell told the public he lacked the passion and commitment for political life. His wife, Alma, reportedly threatened to leave him if he ran for the president, fearing Powell would be targeted for assassination by a racist. We're left to wonder how recent American history might have turned out differently if Alma Powell had less fear of her husband being assassinated. Uninterested in the presidency, Powell moved into a position a few rungs lower on the ladder, becoming Secretary of State in 2001. 
In Washington, Powell was perceived as a voice of moderation in the administration in contrast to Vice President Cheney and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. But that was fueled in part by the fact that Secretaries of State always seem uh, diplomatic solutions and Secretaries of Defense always see military solutions. But Powell had been reticent about military force before George W. Bush came to the presidency. It was not fan of Democratic interventions clashing with his predecessor as Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Colin Powell said this, Albright was an early opponent of the Powell doctrine that the United States should restrict its military interventions to situations in which its vital interests are threatened and should always insist on using overwhelming force. In his memoirs, Powell recalled that he almost had an aneurysm when Albright challenged him to explain what's the point of having this superb military you're always talking about if you can't use it. Albright jabbed at Powell shortly before, before turning over the State Department to him. You know, General Powell wrote a book, and one of the problems with writing a book is that it takes a while to get it published. It was, I think, probably ironic that just at the time that this book came out, in fact, the limited application of limited force in Bosnia was working. Powell entered the Bush administration with a sterling, heroic reputation and put considerable effort into maintaining it. David Frum described Powell as the deadliest bureaucratic knife fighter in the whole Bush administration. Powell was widely believed to be one of Bob Woodward's top sources for years, going back to the 91 book, The Commanders. Powell was usually portrayed as the wise and careful figure in Woodward's accounts of the Bush administration. It's hard to shake the sense that Powell was mortified for his role in making the case for the invasion of Iraq in 2003, particularly his presentation at the United Nations about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. He told NPR in 2006, when people ask me, is this a blot on your record? Yeah, okay, fine. It's a blot on my record. It's there for everybody to see forever. But do you want me to walk around saying I have a blot on my record every day? End quote. Powell never endorsed a Republican for president again, even though he donated to John McCain's 2008 campaign during the primary. Apparently, Powell's polite, button-down public persona obscured a blunt and sometimes funny assessment of other top figures in American politics. He endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016, but a leaked private email revealed his true feelings. He said this, I would rather not have to vote for her. Although she is a friend, I respect. He wrote in the email dated July 2016 to or Ju- July 26, 2014. A 70-year-old person with long track record, unbridled ambition, greedy, non-transformable, with a husband uh, still <laughs> being with bimbos at home. That's what Powell said about Hillary. In those leaked emails, Powell called Donald Trump a national disgrace, an international pariah, and so Powell has been a fixture in politics for a long time. And and the interesting part in Washington, it's hard to kind of be the middle of the road, bipartisan person. You see, we don't like that. We don't like people that we look at and go, I don't know, are they conservative? Are they liberal? Are they Republican, Democrat? Are they independent? Where do they stand? Who do they vote for? And yet it seemed like Powell towed the line a little bit. Now, he endorsed some Democratic uh, uh, presidents. And so that made it a little weird for some. Some of the conservatives that, that held him up as uh, the next great thing saw where he endorsed Democratic hopefuls, and it bothered them. You know, and so I would argue it's probably best they don't endorse anyone, but, you know, people are going to do what they do. But either way, he served his country. He had a great record. He did a lot of great things. And he passed on. I think what we're seeing, at least what I'm seeing, is the the political figures that I've grown up looking to. 
are aging. And so even even when you look at our our top leaders in the country, uh, President Biden, 78 years old, Nancy Pelosi, similar age, Chuck Schumer on up there in age. Look, we're seeing folks aging right in front of our eyes. And so the question is, who's going to continue the fight? Who's going to pick up the torch? Who's going to step in to lead? And in the current political atmosphere, who would want to? I guess that's the question. Who wants to put their family through that? I think Colin Powell's wife is wise. Not that Colin Powell would have been assassinated. But why would you want your family to step into that? I mean, I think if I went home and told my wife, hey, I'm running for office of any kind, but especially president, she would say, no, you're not. And so we've created an atmosphere in politics where no one wants to step in because it is a literal fight. Just over the weekend, you had a conservative member of parliament stabbed to death in Britain. There's a lot of anger going on. There's a lot of talking past each other, yelling at each other, not willing to have a a good and fair debate where you can debate and disagree and walk away, friends. We don't see that. Now, now I'll be honest with you, behind the scenes, when I worked in politics, Republicans, Democrats, they had dinner together. They hung out together. But when they would get in front of that camera, they would... They would say things that you would think they're not friends with those folks because now things come become personal. Not policy debates, but personal. And so we, we're, we're at this thought and this mindset of, oh, because we disagree politically, we can't be cordial with each other. Well, I can't be your friend. I can't have conversations with you because you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. You're pro-life or you're pro-choice. Oh, or you got the vaccine or you didn't get the vaccine. Oh, you're for mask or you're not for mask. I mean, I, I know firsthand there's going to be Thanksgiving dinners this year where people say you can't come because of X, Y, and Z. And they're all politically motivated. I mean, how sad is that? How sad is that? We're not going to get together as a family. We're not going to get together as friends because of X, Y, and Z. And those all are politically motivated. If somebody told you, yeah, we, we, we can't get together as a family because some are UT fans, some are Bama fans, and we just don't get along. You would go, that's crazy. That's crazy. Y'all can get along and still like different football teams. But for some reason, when we say... We we can't get together as a family because some are liberal, some are conservative. We go, well, that makes sense. No, it's the same thing as tribalism, and it's nonsense. That's what it is. It's nonsense. I can disagree adamantly and, 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 and strongly and aggressively with someone when it comes to abortion. But I don't hate them. We just see the world differently. I don't want to attack them. I don't want their family to be sick. I don't want them to be hurt or endangered. 
But I, I believe we have some folks in our society that they, they do wish that on their political enemy. They wish death. They wish hurt. You're, you're going to see posts about Colin Powell, people saying good riddance. That's what you're going to see. We see it every time. And, and shame on us. We'll be back. Lift your head, As we finish up today, I just want to encourage you. Look, there are so many things going on in our country and around our globe uh, that we can't possibly shoulder the burden for. So I've had this conversation often with folks over the last year. And a hundred years ago, if something, I mean, first off, a hundred years ago, had somebody like Colin Powell died, we wouldn't know about that for weeks. But in today's time, we know about everything immediately. So we know about that. We know about what's going on in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. We know about fires and tornadoes and hurricanes. And we know about buildings collapsing. And we know about terrorist attacks. And we know about shootings in Chicago. And we know about uh, a cop shooting. And we know about politics in Washington and politics in Nashville and in court cases out of Mississippi and court cases out of Texas and bills out of Texas that don't affect us here in Tennessee, but we still pay attention to. And we know about what's going on in New York and we know about what's going on in Oregon and in Washington and California. We know about what's going on at the Met Gala. We know all of this immediately because of social media and because of the Internet. And so what that means is where in the past we would we would shoulder some of the burden of what was going on around the country and around the globe. But we were mainly concerned about our neck of the woods, mainly concerned, concerned about our circle of influence and what was going on in our backyard. So so if something happened in our county, we would we would know about it and do something about it or engage if something was going on in our state, yeah, we would know about it. We might engage depending on where it was, but we would we would go from there. If something was happening in another state, you know, it might get to us. It may not. But if you want to know why depression and anxiety is rising in our society, first off, there's a number of reasons. One is because of boredom. We've progressed so far as a society that we are bored. And so what used to take a 40-hour work week doesn't really take a 40-hour work week, but we're still working 40 hours. And so some of that time is going to be uh, filled in with, you know, searching the Internet. What's on Twitter? What's on Facebook? Who can I argue with? What's happening at uh, Neyland Stadium? All of these things. So we progress so far as a society that we don't have to get up with the with the sun in the morning and and take care of the fields and take care of our animals. Now, some people do. But that's like 1% of the population. And so we're, we're at a place in society where we're bored. And then we're at a place in society where we know all the problems of the world. And so when we know all the problems of the world, of course we're going to have anxiety because we're not designed or wired to carry the burden of all of that. And especially if you're a non-Christian, you don't even have a place to take those burdens. You know, where Jesus says, cast your cares upon me. If you're not a a Christian, where do you cast those cares? You carry that weight. You might go to see a therapist. You might go sit down with, uh, with a friend. You might just get and rant and rave on social media. 
And so we're woe is me, sky is falling because we know everything that's happening in the world. And then we neglect our neighbors. Or we neglect our kids or we neglect our, our spouse. And we get to a place of going, what's the point of all of it anyway? Everything's going in the crapper. Inflation is higher than it's it's been in 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 forever. Unemployment's low, but four point something million people quit their jobs last month. Congress is about to vote on a $3.5 trillion bill that they claim doesn't cost any money. You know, we're having all of these discussions. So no wonder more people are depressed and anxious. Do my kids have to wear a mask to school? If I don't put a mask on them, are they going to be counted absent? There's all these things, real life problems that are happening. And maybe we're struggling how to cope with that. So, so the, what are we going to do? Look, every week I try to tell you what's going on around the country and globe for abortion because that's what I'm here to do. I don't think enough people know the atrocity of abortion. And I know that's adding to the anxiousness and it's adding to the burden. But folks, we, we need a break from all the chaos. We need a break from ranting and raving at our neighbors on social media and then acting as if we're like that in person. I know people on social media that are completely different than when I meet them in person. We can't hide behind that facade online. Let's be better. Let's be encouraging. We'll talk to you next week.